Did you know that there was a time when the sequel to 1977 Star Wars was going to be written by a woman, the queen of space opera herself, Lee Brackett? On this episode, we dive into how this came about, her Star Wars sequel draft, the differences, and what we think. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this episode where we're talking all about Lee Brackett's Star Wars sequel, which I'm very excited to talk about. I feel like this episode has been a long time coming, and we actually just talked about doing this episode on our anniversary. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are <laughs> doing yes. it. Yes. Rarely do we immediately follow up. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very nice. And I'm really excited because like you said, it has been a long time coming. I can't say that without thinking of Taylor Swift anymore, honestly. But anyway, the the <laughs> Lee Bracket of it all, I think is something that we've referenced a lot on the podcast as like, oh, isn't that so crazy? Yeah. <laughs> and then we've never really dove in. So mm-hmm. here's our episode diving in. And I'm really excited what we found reading the script or her second draft. It's the only thing that has been released is her second draft mm-hmm. of the Star Wars sequel. It wasn't yet called Empire Strikes Back. That was Lawrence Kasdan and George Lucas, I think, who came up with that. So Star Wars sequel it is. Star Wars sequel. <laughs> it, the Star Wars sequel gives me the same vibes of people calling Galaxy's Edge Star Wars Land, which yeah. I, I call it Star Wars Land too. I just think it's funny. Like the Star Wars sequel. Oh, yeah. Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just funny because I I prefer Star Wars sequel to Star Wars 2, which feels so gimmicky. <laughs> yeah. No, agree. Agree. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know. Do we have any updates up top? I don't think so. Right? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, I think we should. Bad Batch coming soon? Oh, yeah, that's our update. We finally got the trailer <laughs> or something to mention. We got the trailer for Bad Batch season three. And I will say that that is a different trailer than what they showed in at Star Wars Celebration in London last year. Because we've talked about that trailer. And this was not this was not the same thing. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> very different. Very different. Very exciting. Yeah. Can't wait. If you're wondering, are they going to be covering the Bad Batch on the podcast? You know the answer is yes. <laughs> There's the confirmation. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. We'll be covering it. It looks like a very intense season. They released all the episode titles as well, which you guys know we love episode titles. They're very ominous. I'm very ready for the angst. I'm very nervous about some of the things we've seen in the trailer. Of course, Ventress is back. I broke the internet, I think. I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very excited. It's going to be fun and probably devastating, but really fun. <laughs> <laughs> so look out for that. Yeah. We'll we'll be covering it as usual. We love Star Wars animation. And if you're looking for those episode titles, I did post a graphic on our Instagram of them if you want to look. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we should dive into Lee Brackett's Star Wars sequel. So in part one, we are talking about who is Lee Brackett. In part two, we're going to go through a summary of Lee's draft. And then in part three, we're going to give our thoughts about the draft. So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? All right. Welcome to part one, where we're talking about who is Lee Brackett. I feel like my only familiarity with her had been this the Star Wars sequel draft that I hadn't fully read 
yet. <laughs> I feel like I yeah. didn't really know a lot about her or anything like that. So going through this and actually researching a little bit more about who she was in the science fiction community was actually really interesting. Had had you and the screenwriting community, yeah. not just the, yeah. the science fiction community. It's kind of wild. Mm-hmm. I you know I think in on my periphery I always knew that she was a big freaking deal. But if you were going to take one thing away from this podcast, honestly, it is that Lee Brackett <laughs> did a whole freaking lot before <laughs> she is kind of like, did you know that before it w- became kind of a Star Wars fans thing of, did you know that Lee Brackett wrote basically Empire Strikes Back before Lawrence Kasdan did? Um, that's what I knew her from, just like you. And there's a lot there. So you should dive into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We mentioned it in the prologue, but she is known as the queen of space opera, which is such a great title and one that we talk about a lot, actually, when it comes to Star Wars and how George describes Star Wars as space opera, which is such like a fun term. I think that's really fun to dig into. And the fact that we haven't kind of circled it back to Lee Brackett, the queen of space opera <laughs> is bad on our part, but we're rectifying that right now. (laughs) So Lee, she is probably best known for her book, The Long Tomorrow from 1956. Um, It made her the first woman ever shortlisted for the Hugo Award. And if you're unfamiliar, the Hugo Awards are literary awards for best science fiction uh, or fantasy works. Um, And that process or that um, award was kind of formally started in 1953. So in 1956, her book, The Long Tomorrow, uh, was one of the, she was the first woman shortlisted along with an author, C.L. Moore. She was a really big part of the like science fantasy genre. She wrote a lot (laughs) in the early like 40s and 50s. And she was part of the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. And one of the fun facts that I found about her that I couldn't really find a ton of information about is that she contributed to the second issue of this fanzine called Pogo's STF-ETTE. And I have no idea if I'm saying that correctly, but it was a female-run fanzine. And we talk a lot about the history of fanzines um, kind of throughout Sky Talkers we have and throughout the history of like Star Wars and specifically women in Star Wars too. And that fanzine culture is kind of a huge part of that. And so I thought it was really cool to kind of find this this fact about Lee that she had actually also been a part of fanzine culture. Um, I don't know how how often she contributed to this fanzine. I couldn't even find a digital copy or photo or anything of the fanzine in general. So kind of take that as you will. But I thought that was kind of a fun fact about her. Super cool. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I also found really interesting about Lee Brackett and kind of our discussion about not realizing how big of a deal she actually was is that she was super close friends with Ray Bradbury, who famous. I think one of his most famous works is Fahrenheit 451, which is one of my favorite books. And they were super close friends. They collaborated on a few projects together. And her husband, Edmund Hamilton, when they got married, Ray Bradbury was the best man for both of them at their wedding. So they were like this cute little friend group (laughs) writing (laughs) sci-fi fantasy all together, (laughs) which I thought was really cool. And I love Ray Bradbury. So that was also kind of fun too. Something you find out when you dive into the writer community is that just like in general, you read about like romantic poets, you read about science fiction writers, you read it. It's just like everyone was kind of friends or challenging each other. And it's, it's always kind of fun and cute to read about. I know that's kind of silly to say, but it is. You're like, oh my God, they all knew each other. Yeah. I think it's one of those things too, like when you're first learning about like George Lucas and realizing who, you know, like you don't really know much about him, like his friend group, but you're like, oh, oh, he's like, 
best friends with Steven Spielberg. You know, it's one of those things like, oh, okay, yeah. all right, <laughs> cool. Right, this, right, right. This whole fan uh, friend group that kind of defined yeah, cinema. Artist communities. Yeah. So it's – and it, I – I just think that sometimes when you dive into any sort of history about like your favorite thing, whether that's literature, whether that's movies, whether that's television shows, you find out that there's always been artist communities and like a lot of sort of criticism and things like that thrive in Mm -hmm. that, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of collaboration and, and criticism and people kind of refining their work into who they'll eventually be known for when it comes to people like Lee Bracken and Ray Bradbury and George Lucas and stuff like that. So kind of, I, I feel like I'm kind of giving a spiel, like a little biography of her right now, but I thought it was really interesting. She's known for writing planetary romances, which I didn't know what this term was. Of course, my first thought is, oh, like an actual romance, <laughs> but it's not quite <laughs> like that in the science fiction, science fantasy world. It's also known as sword and planet, and it's known as a subgenre of science fiction in which the bulk of the action consists of adventures on one or more exotic alien planets characterized by distinctive physical and cultural backgrounds. And they call out that particularly Lee had a work called the planet stories, which tended to be set on Mars and Venus, and that she like the way that the politics work on these planets is what defines it as a planetary romance, uh, which I thought was interesting. One, that it wasn't the term planetary romance isn't what you kind of think of it as. I almost thought of it as like, oh, romance between people on different planets. But it's actually more <laughs> about the politics and like the the structure of how these planets work and kind of what their larger themes are supposed to like be interpretive as when we're thinking about like the themes of stories and things like that. That sounds to me like the Clone Wars, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. Because in the way that we zero in on the politics of a planet in a couple episodes and then move on to the next for the politics of a a different planet and the environments change and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think exactly. And I think that when you think about the things that Lee Brackett was known for in kind of her writing, uh, when we're talking about her books and novels and things like that, rather than her screenwriting, I think you can kind of see exactly why George would have wanted her to work on the Star Wars sequel. And I think before diving into kind of her specifically when it comes to her relationship with George Lucas, which sadly was kind of short-lived due to her death from cancer in 1978, um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about this term of space opera. There was this article um, written, I think it's from 2013. I might be wrong on that year. We'll have it linked, but it's from Gizmodo. And it kind of talks about Lee Brackett and her work on Star Wars, but then also her work within the science fantasy world. And it quotes a lot of things from this 1976 interview that Lee and her husband, Edmund Hamilton, gave. And unfortunately, Charlotte and I could not find this actual full 1976 interview. So we're kind of limited to what was pulled into this Gizmodo article. So I hope you'll kind of understand that. We looked really hard for it and we couldn't find (laughs) it. But she's known as the queen of space space opera. And in one of these um, interviews, she talks about how the term space opera was used as a pejorative term, often applied to, quote, uh, applied to a story that has an element of adventure. And the article goes on to say she offers a defense of space opera as, quote, the folk tale, the hero tale of our particular niche in history, which, again, reading this, I was like, yeah, of course, that's Star Wars. You know what I mean? <laughs> 
She has this other quote that's pulled from the 1976 interview where she writes, but the space opera has been telling us tales of space flight, of journeys to other worlds in the solar system. These stories serve to stretch our little minds, to draw us out beyond our narrow skies into the vast glooms of interstellar space where the great suns ride in splendor and the bright nebulae fling their veils of fire parsecs long across the universe, where the coal sack and the horse head make patterns of black mystery, where the cepheid, cepheid variables blink their evil eyes and a billion namesake planets may harbor life forms infinitely numerous and strange. Escape fiction? Yes, indeed. But in its own ironic way, as we see now, it was an escape into a reality which some people are even now trying to fight off. And I don't know, I just, we, I feel like we only talk about the term space opera in terms of Star Wars, obviously, because that's what we do here. But I really loved seeing her perspective on the genre as a whole. And I don't often think about the genre outside of Star Wars. But then you read something like this from her and you're like, yeah, that does really perfectly describe Star Wars. But it's also interesting to think about the life that that term and creators working within that genre or adjacent to that genre in science, fantasy, and fiction have really been thinking about for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. I would say, I think that when I read this quote, I think that the Star Wars original trilogy does satisfy Mm -hmm. this definition. And this is something we've talked about. We had an episode, like what seems like a million years ago, about genre in Star Wars, in which we spent like about an hour talking about space opera as, as a whole. But I think something that's just interesting is that I don't think that Star Wars is as space operatic as it used to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting just in terms of like modern filmmaking trends where anything that is labeled a space opera these days in on film, like the movies just don't do that well. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like we're we've gotten far away from maybe not super far, but we've we've delineated a little bit from this original thought of what space opera is. I still think Star Wars does satisfy it, but I don't think we're at the place that we were in the 70s and the 80s with Star Wars as a space opera that we are right now. And I think that's probably because we have so much Star Wars also that is filling in different types of genre, which is also a hallmark of Star Wars, is to pick and choose from a bunch of different genre and not just be one you know, one mm-hmm. genre just in general. I, I think it's interesting that for the sequel to the most successful movie ever, George Lucas would zero in on someone who was an excellent science fiction writer and was super into uh, space opera. When at this point, I think that Star Wars was being heralded as successful due to its amalgam of a bunch of different genres. Am I making sense? Because I feel like it's a bold move for him to zero in on a writer who was all about science fiction versus what he went with eventually after Lee Brackett unfortunately passed away with Lawrence Kasdan, who was more known for romance and adventure, right? And I feel like that is different, but not, not dissimilar, but it's not like... Lawrence Kasdan had a ton of experience writing science fiction. It's a totally different coin flip. Yeah. And I just wonder, and I just, when I was reading this draft, and we'll get to it obviously, but I was wondering what would Star Wars look like today if we had a writer who was carried throughout whose main base was science fiction and space opera and everything? Because I just feel like we have gotten really far away from that. And I like where we're at right now, but I, I just can't imagine how much more fueled in science fiction Star Wars could have been. 
Yeah, I think it's a really interesting like line of thought to go down to think about, you know, if if Lee's version of the Star Wars sequel had kind of continued on, which honestly I don't think it would have because what we'll talk about Me is either. what the George Lucas didn't like the draft in general, kind of even before Lee passed away. You know what I mean? He already had changes that he wanted to make to it, pretty significant changes. And we'll talk about that in a second. I have a few quotes from him. But there was one other kind of quote I wanted to pull from this uh, article from Gizmodo that's kind of based on this 1976 interview with Brackett and her husband. And so this is quoted, and I think it kind of touched on what you were talking about, like these different genres and themes kind of being pulled into Star Wars, but also space opera and science fiction and science fantasy. But I think that that is part of what Lee also liked about science fantasy and science fiction as well. Yes. Yes. This is the quote. This is the article. It says, This 1976 interview with Brackett is a must-read, including the parts where she talks about the early hostility she received from some readers as a woman writing in science fiction. She also says that many women became interested in science fiction after Sputnik was launched because suddenly all of this stuff seemed real. Also in that interview, she talks about her love for Edgar Rice Burroughs and confesses, quote, I suppose most of my stuff would be called escape fiction. That This is the type of stuff I love to read. She goes on to add, quote, I'm interested mainly in never trying to mold science fiction into one particular thing. I think it should be free to have every type of thinking, every type of story. I think you should have the ecological stories, the political stories, the big think type of story. I mean, what anybody wants to write. What I hate to see are the occasional attempts that are made periodically, none of them ever last very long, to mold the field into one particular thing and say science fiction has to be such and such and so. In other words, just what I happen to think science fiction should be. And I think reading this quote in light of what you were talking about and even thinking about our past conversations on genre, this is also very Star Wars. The fact that we have this umbrella of Star Wars to talk about ecological stories, political stories, big think type of stories. Like we're getting to see all of that under this Star Wars umbrella franchise, which you could kind of call science fiction or space opera, but it's also including all of these other things. And to your point that we've maybe strayed away from the space opera uh, or science fiction heavy side of it, I think Lee would also say perhaps that, yeah, that's kind of the point. Like something like Star Wars is long lasting. So you get to flesh it out in all these other directions and explore these different types of stories. Totally agree. Like completely agree. Also, it should be noted that Lee Brackett, I know know you're getting to this. She didn't just write science fiction Mm -hmm. and I should, it should be noted that I'm aware of that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I just mentioned that based off of why George Lucas hired her, which was science fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think we had mentioned at the top of this part, but she um, also did a lot of screenplay writing as well. She actually did the screenplay writing, uh, wrote screenplays uh, when her actual novel writing and work like in science fiction wasn't paying as well. So that's when she would, I think reading her biography, it sounded like she would do a couple years writing, you know, for her books and stuff like that. And then she would spend a chunk of time writing screenplays and then kind of switch back to writing books and things like that, um, which I thought was interesting. Uh, But she did write screenplays for a number of movies. This is just a short list of The Long Goodbye, The Big Sleep, and Rio Bravo. Um, It's just insane that she wrote the screenplay for The Big Sleep. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. Yeah. (laughs) 
a classic and it's just like, oh my God. But yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's also one of those things like learning about Carrie Fisher being a yes. doctor and, yes. and the ways that she's contributed to certain movies and stuff throughout time, like not just Star Wars. You're like, oh, oh, okay. Okay, cool. <laughs> Got yeah, it. totally. Um, All right. So now actually getting into her relationship with George Lucas and how she got signed in, there is a quote from John Baxter's book, Mythmaker, um, where a friend gave George Lucas basically a copy of one of Brackett's books um, and told Lucas, quote, here is someone who did the cantina scene better than you. Um, And then John Baxter describes the phone conversation between Lucas and Brackett quote, Lucas said, have you ever written for the movies? And Brackett said, yes, I have. Rio Bravo, El Dorado, The Big Sleep, The Long Goodbye. And then apparently there was a long pause and George Lucas responded, you're that Lee Lee Brackett? And Brackett said, yes, isn't that why you called me in? And George said, no, I called you in because you were a pulp science fiction writer. (laughs) And I just think that's really funny. (laughs) So the first time I read this quote, I was like, pissed off that George Lucas wouldn't know that about the fact that these th- these two credits were the same, were person. The same person. Yeah. And then I, I realized Google didn't exist then. So I just need to <laughs> I need to relax. Bring it back. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that I think this is what I what I was trying to say before is that George really hired her because of the science fiction novel, background yeah. and not the immense genre writing that she has been doing across different genre, right? Yeah. And I think it's so funny (laughs) that George was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, I didn't get that note from my assistant. Hold on a second. (laughs) Uh, So essentially he asks her to write the screenplay for the Star Wars sequel. And they had a number of meetings and conferences to discuss the sequel and the movie. Um, And unfortunately, she passed away from cancer in March 1978. And George, in the annotated screenplays, George says, quote, during the story conferences I had with Lee, my thoughts weren't fully formed and I felt that her script went in a completely different direction. Uh, So it sounds like there was, you know, when we're thinking about the fact that Lee's draft was more or less scrapped, but we'll, we'll dig into some of those details in the next couple of parts. But the fact that he kind of went in more or less a new direction, it sounds like there was just kind of miscommunication or that George hadn't even fully figured out how he wanted the story to go during his conversations with Lee Brockett. Yeah, super interesting because I just don't think it went in a completely different direction know, to what same. we got. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of in the same direction. It's just not fully fleshed out, honestly. Yeah. It, this entire draft, and we'll get into it, reads very much like a first or second draft to me. It is so unfinished and needs a lot of work. Um, and that work did not happen. Yeah. But all the but, pieces are there when we think about exactly. Empire Strikes Back. That's what's so interesting about the draft is George says, yeah, go, we went in a completely different direction, which isn't wrong, but also isn't is right. Completely yeah, right either. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's interesting. It's so curious as fans when we get a glimpse into the different drafts that go into the, a movie that we know by heart, right? Mm-hmm. It just makes me yearn for reading Michael Arndt's draft of The Force Awakens uh-huh. that got scrapped and then JJ and Lawrence Kasdan took over. I just, I I really wish that we um, could have access to those things. And something also to note is that this draft, Lee, Lee's draft for the Star Wars sequel did not get released until I think 2016 mm-hmm. in its entirety. So 
maybe someday we'll have access to those things, but how many drafts in Star Wars history have been released and how many haven't? I find them all so interesting because what's on the page is something that was discussed as a a potential direction that they could go in. Mm -hmm. Whether or not George wants to admit it, it, in these story conferences, I think major themes that were brought into the drafts were brought, were worked into the writing. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I feel like I would glean so much information about seeing the early drafts of of The Force Awakens, of The Last Jedi, of The Rise of Skywalker, things that we'll probably never see, at least for another 20 years. But <laughs> God, I want to see them because it's just so fascinating to dive into. And also think like, I'm happy with what we got. You know, things all worked out, even though it's a really tragic story with Lee Brackett. I need to note that. It, it's so sad to me that we weren't able to see her work carried through. Mm-hmm to the Star Wars sequel and what would that have been like if the Star Wars sequel one of the best movies ever made was written by a woman and like how would that have changed the trajectory of how Star Wars was produced and I don't know created because it still hasn't happened (laughs) yeah so yeah I don't know yeah yeah it, it would be interesting to know and this is like the closest we'll get to kind of that what if right now um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, as noted, she did pass away in March 1978, which is when Lawrence Kasdan was brought in. George had written his version of the script and then brought Lawrence Kasdan in, I believe. But George does give uh, end up giving Lawrence Kasdan and Lee Brackett screenwriting credits on Empire Strikes Back. So she's she's still credited for the movie, which I think is great. And yeah, like you noted, her script was not published until 2016, and it was previously you could only access it at the Special Collections Library at Eastern New Mexico University and the Lucasfilm Archives. <laughs> but now we have this draft, which is available, which if you haven't read it, highly recommend. And we're going to go through it in the next part. Let's do it. Okay, so welcome to part two, where we're discussing the summary of Lee's draft. If you'd like to read this 129-page draft, (laughs) you can click the link. I will will share it in the show notes. But we'll go over the summary, basically, and we'll read some quotes from the draft itself before we dive on into it. So you won't be lost and you'll know exactly what we're talking about. I think before we start, we should probably note that, you know, just if you haven't read the draft, just to kind of contextualize yourself on it, that, well, yes, there are a lot of differences. So the story kind of follows the same structure as what we do eventually see in Empire Strikes Back, where we start on an icy planet, Luke is rescued, we go to a bug planet, there is um, Han and Leia and the Millennium Falcon, we go to the cloud planet, Vader and Luke fight there. So we have kind of essentially the same story beats and where people are physically moving to. But then it's a lot of those details that are different about what they're talking about um, at these different locations. So I thought that might be good to, you know, kind of set the stage, I guess. Yes, absolutely. So we begin on the icy planet. And instead of tauntauns, we have snow lizards. (laughs) Which, what is a tauntaun if not kind of a snow lizard? Furry snow lizard. Even sort of the way that they move, tauntauns eventually move is sort of like T Rex like, which yeah. I guess is sort of reptilian, lizardy. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Even though they're furry, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, the entire vibe is very similar. Luke gets attacked by a snow creature. At this point, it's not called a yeti or a wampa or anything like that. They're these dark, shadowy snow creatures that actually are the main threat on this icy planet. 
And it's curious, the entire script kind of dives pretty quickly into horror genre Yeah, <laughs> with the creatures on this icy planet. They're very scary. I think something that else that stood out to me is that there is an ice castle on this yes. snow planet. It's not the base that we see uh, in Empire Strikes Back. It's what I would assume was very kind of Elsa frozen ice castle. That's kind of how I saw it in my mind. And that there are these snow, uh, these basically like the Wampa, what becomes the Wampa, but there's many of them and they're kind of infiltrating the ice castle and killing people. Yeah. There's bodies strewn about at one point. The evil snowmen, they start uh, breaking the water pipes and then the water (laughs) pipes fall on people and freeze people instantly with the water that comes out. It's And so you're like kind of walking around all these frozen people in, I guess, like ice cubes, big giant ice cubes kind of thing. This is spooky. It's spooky. And I was like, wow, we're really starting here. They're really starting with a bang in terms of horror. And I think the point is, is that they really wanted to maximize the stakes of the rebellion right away. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that the stakes are put into place by the environment, not necessarily the empire. Something I find throughout this entire draft is that the tension sort of just isn't there between the empire and the rebellion. I just, I don't really feel it. The tension between Vader and Luke, I don't really feel either. Even the tension between Han and Leia just feels very one-dimensional. Yeah, I think this this first section, I think, is where you kind of feel it the most because the similar to what we see in Empire where Luke comments on its Tauntaun, right? There are no life forms out here or whatever he says. Th- we see that more fleshed out in Lee Brackett's version of the draft where these snow creatures are the inhabitants of this planet and don't want the rebellion there. And the rebellion talks a lot about, okay, where are we going to go now? We need a new base, you know? So I think that's something we kind of see as far as the tension between the empire and the rebellion. Um, but yeah, like you said, that doesn't really carry through throughout the rest of the the draft. Yeah. So we get basically the same thing of Luke getting lost in the snow and Han and Leia Han returning to the base with Leia. Instead of Leia being the main commander, like we see in Empire Strikes Back, we have another commander, Commander Willard or General Willard, which I think is interesting because the way that Leia is positioned in this draft, honestly, is, in my opinion, not in the best light. She is not as strong as we saw her in the original Star Wars, honestly. And I think in a lot of different ways, including the fact that she's not immediately seen as in command, um, on this base, I feel like uh, it just it changes the way that her character is perceived, I guess, mm-hmm. um, if that makes sense. All that to say, I didn't love Leia in this draft, and we'll, we'll get into it. The major takeaway, though, is that something that Lee Brackett really, really tries to do is set up a love triangle between <laughs> Han and Luke mm-hmm. in a really big way. And immediately, Leia and Han are flirting, chasing each other, crashing into each other. The, the tension that we feel in Empire Strikes Back, especially in the beginning, is sort of there in this draft and the fact that they're yelling at each other and everything. But there is a, a, an immediacy felt that they are probably going to make out in the in this scene. And, <laughs> yes. She does slap and guess him what? at some point yeah, in the beginning. <laughs> exactly. There is, a, there is a slap. There is some what we know is the Han and Leia, like aggression towards each other. But instead of 
unlike Lawrence Kasdan, who makes us wait for the kiss, like Leah Brackett does not make us wait for the kiss at all. There's a lot of kissing going on between Leia and Luke and Han and Leia all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And something Leia really wants to get out to Han is the fact that Leia found out that Han's stepfather, Ovin Murakal, is, quote, the most powerful man next to the emperor himself and Darth Vader. Through his transport guild, he controls all the pilots and navigators. I know he goes with a winning side, which right now is the empire. You might change his mind. So Leia is trying to get Han to go on this mission to talk to his, quote, stepfather, Ovin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, hopefully Ovin, they can win over Ovin to the rebellion side in order to take down the empire. And this is like a big dramatic moment in which we're, it's revealed that Han has a very important stepfather. Yeah. This little scene, um, and you have a quote pulled from it where Leia says from the draft, we've been in touch with your stepfather. And the script says Han's face changes, hardens. He steps back from her. Han says, he's not my stepfather. And Leia responds, well, whoever he is, he was fond of you once. Of all the people in the galaxy, you're you're the only one he might listen to. And to me, this was giving very much Jin Erso, Saw Gerrera, the whole setup at the beginning of Rogue One, where they're like, you could get to Saw. He, you know, you grew up with him kind of thing. It felt very similar to that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another weird aside that I found out is, I didn't know this, <laughs> but... The name Ovin is actually Han's canonical father mm-hmm. <laughs> that was established in, uh, I think, the Han Solo and Chewbacca comics that came out shortly after Solo was released. Um, there's not that much details about this character, but I think it's super interesting that they recycled this name, Ovin, to, for Han's actual father. Um, and I think that comes directly from this draft because it's not like we have heard of this story be anywhere else really with Han but it's curious to me that they in throughout Star Wars and throughout the development of the original trilogy there have been moments where George Lucas, Lawrence Kasdan, Lee Brackett have tried to make Han more integral to the part of the story in the part of the rebellion and in all these ways it, by by familial um, linkage by making Han very different than what we know Han to be as this like rogue and I think it's so much more powerful to have Han just be this guy who was a smuggler, who was an orphan and things like that versus having him have this giant link to someone super important. That is reserved, obviously, for the Skywalkers. And I just think it makes a stronger character for Han. But I think that there's always been this question mark about for the screenwriters for what the heck to do with Han Solo. And I just think it's kind of interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, in this draft, uh, spoiler, Vader is not Anakin Skywalker, so he's not Luke's father. So I think, you know, to make this kind of big connection to someone in power be through Han and his, you know, stepfather, caretaker, whatever Oven would have been in this version, I think you can kind of see the direction of of the story through Return of the Jedi, right? It would have been very different if Vader is not Luke's father, if this um, person in power is actually coming through Han's side of the story rather than Luke's side of the story. It creates a very different setup for 
what we get at the end of Empire and then also going into Return of the Jedi. And honestly, for all of the saga, <laughs> once you remove Anakin being Vader and Luke's father. Totally. So Han doesn't want to take this mission and it becomes a source of tension throughout the entire uh, script, honestly. And back with Luke, who's lost in the snow, Luke encounters not a Yeti in the cave, but something more mysterious. And he hears Ben Kenobi there, but it's a little different than how we how we see Ben Kenobi in, in Empire Strikes Back as a ghost. It's not really like that. It's more like a voice. Han and Leia do save Luke and bring him back from the base, but there's no Tauntaun, uh, Guts, anything like that. <laughs> I did like how Leia goes out, too. She Me too. They save him together, which I did like that yeah. part. There's a couple of moments like that in the script where I'm like, oh, this is cute. Like, it's Han and Leia. Yeah. They're together. They're doing this together. Like, it's, it's great. Yeah. But something... Okay, so this is where it gets kind of interesting. I know that you like this part and like this whole exploration that Lee, Lee does. And so when Luke is back in the hospital bed, uh, recovering from the ice storm and being um, stuck there, he fumbles with his lightsaber and fumbles with the crystal inside the lightsaber, which I think is one of the early times that we see lightsaber crystals inside of a lightsaber casing um, being discussed. And I think he gets sort of super possessive of it. Luke does. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's sort of... Something that Luke deals with in this draft is whether or not he is being overtaken by the dark side of the Force and how to control the Force. There's a real emphasis, I guess, on the characters learning with the Jedi. There's a real emphasis on the characters, specifically Luke, learning to control the Force. Control being like a key word here um, versus learn to master. It's really control, 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 which I think is an interesting difference um, because there's a sense that the dark side of the Force can take over your brain. And it reminded me the way that the Force is presented in this draft reminded me a little bit of when we used to talk about Revenge of the Sith mm -hmm. and how... There's one draft of Revenge of the Sith or story ideas. I don't even know if it made it into the draft. Story ideas for Revenge of the Sith where the dark side for Anakin Skywalker, when he turns to the dark side, was sort of referred to as like a virus or something that takes yeah. over your body. And I think it, it's it's more like a physical manifestation, I guess. That episode, by the way, that we talked about that is called The Dark Side. And there's a lot of theories around that. None of that is really concrete. But there's been a lot of ways throughout the years that the Force has been talked about that are a little different than how we refer to it in the 2020s, I guess. And this one is a really good example of how... In Lee Brackett's script, Luke is really struggling with feeling overcome with the dark side and the force. And this is the first time we see this is in this hospital bed when he feels very possessive and controlling over the the crystal inside the lightsaber. Yeah, I think the possessiveness that we see from Luke here in the beginning and this ice castle is really interesting and something I really liked that Lee explored. And we'll talk about it further down when we get to the bog planet and Luke and Vader actually talk and we have Minch who would become Yoda. All of the things that they talk about with the Force, there's there's a much bigger emphasis on the dark side, I think, in this draft than even what we do see in Empire Strikes Back. Obviously, that's a big piece of it, you know, like Luke going into the cave and his discussions with Yoda and eventually what he talks about with Vader. All of that is obviously, you know, the dark side is an element to that. But I think it's more of an overwhelming element when we're when Luke is learning about the force in this version of Lee's draft. And when they're in the med bay, 
number one, Luke confesses his love for Leia, kisses her. He says, I'm just a farm boy and you're a princess, which I think is hilarious. I think people will, would have memed that today if that was the line. Like if Luke had said that to Leia after kissing her in the med bay. <laughs> but <laughs> Luke starts seeing Ben again in the med bay and the nurse calls him out, basically yells at him that he's hallucinating again. Um, but the way that Lee describes it in the draft, Luke is almost in a trance with his lightsaber. And she describes the lightsaber. At, he turns on the lightsaber when he's in the med bay um, with the nurse there, which I think would also, we're talking about kind of this horror element. I think you have the idea of these snow creatures that are attacking people in the base. And then we have Luke, who is kind of seemingly possessed by his lightsaber. I can almost see the lightsaber ignited like inside this ice castle. And it's a very eerie kind of glow. You know what I mean? Um, but she describes Luke's lightsaber as the blade sheds its strange radiance, which, you know, thinking about word choice, that's not how we describe a lightsaber today. I think, especially in the hands of a hero, the blade sheds its strange radiance. Very eerie, if you ask me. And then Leia asks Luke, Luke, are you hurt? And the script direction says, Luke is staring at the saber and does not look at her. He responds, no, I'm fine. I don't know. It just seems it's very eerie to me, Luke's kind of relationship with his lightsaber, especially here in the beginning. Totally. It's it begins with a sense of unease about Luke's relationship with the force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, that becomes the main source of tension, really. And we can I'm just going to mention it now because Darth Vader is not Luke's father in this script. Yeah. So while that becomes the main source of tension between Luke and Vader in Empire Strikes Back is the similarities between the two, the fact that Vader wants Luke and they have to have a conversation and that conversation becomes the fact that Vader is Luke's father and that revelation and realizing that they're similar and things like that. We, since we don't have that in this draft, what we have is Luke's temptation to the dark side and how that's just a normal thing for Jedi to feel. Mm -hmm. And that is true. But that is the main source of tension here between Vader and Luke. And for me, it falls flat because there's no – it's interesting. It's, it's interesting more interesting to have the that. family push. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just – it feels more personal when this doesn't feel that personal. It just feels a little existential. Anyway, so that's that's what Luke's dealing with <laughs> this entire draft um, is understanding and feeling the force, which makes sense for us to follow up on after 1977 Star Wars. Like It makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um because that was unexplained and needed, we needed to understand that a little bit more. The base gets attacked and Luke gets out and Luke ends up on a, um, it, they, sat, they go their separate ways just like they do in Empire. And Luke lands on a bog planet with R2-D2 and Han and Leia and Chewie and 3PO go in the Falcon and basically escape through the asteroids, right? Similar, very similar vibes, mm -hmm. <laughs> but there was a big escape that happened. Yeah. Honestly, 3PO has some bangers in this draft <laughs> and some of them are like really sad. And I think Lee really liked the relationship between these two robots because again, 3PO just has some like really funny and also sad lines like, 3PO goes, I do think R2 will miss miss me, don't you? Like, that's really cute. And just this recognition of these <laughs> emotions that 3PO has, I think, is very bold. And maybe something that was sort of lost a little bit with uh, Lawrence Kasdan. I don't know. What I think is funny is that 3PO is one of the victims of the water coming down around the 
from yes. the water pipes and he freezes. And then he also gets dismantled on uh, the cloud planet, on yep. the cloud city. That- Just like an empire. Yeah. It's like the same situation that happens, but he doesn't get put back together and he doesn't have any lines after that. Everyone's just kind of like, oh, poor 3PO. Maybe you can fix him. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of sad. But in the beginning, I think that there's a lot of like cute little lines and Anyway, so Han and Leia are in the asteroid field and um, they can't stop making out. Um, <laughs> they, they're, they're lying low um, in the low light of the Falcon <laughs> and they just can't keep their hands off each other. And um, Leia doesn't really know what to think about this, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> so Han says, so the, here's the script. The script says Han has moved in on Leia again. Han, we're two people, alone in the immensity of space. Stops, shakes his head. No, no, hold it. That's too much even for me. Leia suddenly doubles up with laughter. That's a great line, Han, and well-polished with use. Han says, no, matter of fact, you're the only woman who's ever flown in the Falcon. Trouble is, I can't seem to make anything sound convincing. Leia, like, (laughs) so... I think it's like the asteroid feel, I I think they make out like three times and it's not the type of tension that we see in Empire where, not at all. you know, I think the first time we see it, it literally like the camera just pans and we're like looking at them through a window or through a doorway, like making out in another room of the Falcon and then they kind of do. And then I think Chewie and 3PO also watch them make out a couple times and they're like, man, those kids, that's kind of the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's great. Yeah, it's funny. It, it removes a lot of the tension, but it is funny. And like we mentioned earlier, really does kind of emphasize this love triangle between the three of them. But we never really see Leia's not really torn. I think she cares about Luke, obviously, but she's not torn. She, similar to what we see in Empire, where she doesn't want to admit that she likes Han, but she's all over him. So mm-hmm. she knows who she wants to be with but luke is a lot more um romantic Luke's i guess obsessed with leia he is he obsessed. she's kind of the thrust for him later on in the in the script yeah i mean it makes sense that she would carry that over from the original star wars honestly because that is luke's main thrust too <laughs> to get on the death star so yeah. it just continues yeah so it makes sense yeah totally yeah but it's still just awkward. Anytime you read anything about Luke loving Leia, it's just cringe. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of like um, that narrator. They didn't know. <laughs> yeah, they just didn't know. <laughs> anyway, so we're we're in the asteroid field, but something to we need to check in on the Empire. So it takes a while for us to get to check in with the Empire and Darth Vader and everything. We meet Darth Vader on an administrative planet basically 20 pages into the draft. So it takes us a while to meet the Empire and the foes. In the draft, this planet is called Tan Mund. Um, Vader there laments that Luke Skywalker is Ben Kenobi's fledgling. Um, Basically, he comments about his father, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of strings in this draft regarding Vader being Luke's father. Like, you, you can't even read between the lines here. For that, it's just Vader wants Luke to rule the galaxy with him together on the dark side. Mm -hmm. He comments at one point about not allowing Luke to become a weapon for the rebellion, which, again, I thought was an interesting word choice. 
Totally. I really liked that. And I think it, that plays a little bit more with the dark side or the force or something taking over Luke as a, as like a physical manifestation that perhaps the empire or, uh, that the rebellion would want to use as well as the empire. Mm-hmm. So just like we saw an ice castle on the ice planet, we see, uh, for the first time, Darth Vader's castle, um, in this draft as well. And so we have like a couple different castles, and this is, I guess, the first time we see Darth Vader's castle. Now that's a very big staple of new Star Wars, but that was just a Ralph McQuarrie concept art way back when. So that's Darth Vader. He's just being cartoonishly villainy, um, honestly, on this planet. There's Vader. <laughs> There's Vader. So shifting over to Luke, Luke and R2 land on the swamp planet. It's a crash landing. And Luke re- meets um, Minch. Minch is Yoda. And Minch is described as, quote, frog-like and, quote, totally unhuman. He hops away and everything. Like, he's hopping everywhere. Hippity hop. (laughs) It's very froggy. Hippity hop in the bog. It's funny because when we did our Yoda exploration series a couple years back, I remember discussing a bunch of these early iterations Mm -hmm. of Yoda and Minch Yoda. And in some script drafts, it becomes Minch Yoda and then it becomes Yoda I'm glad that they shifted away from Minch to Yoda. I feel like Yoda is just a much better name than Minch, but (laughs) sorry. And Minch says that he served the Jedi Knights. There's less mystery around Minch than there is with Yoda in Empire Strikes Back. We meet Minch and it's very short in which he disguises who he is. He says, my name or part of it is Minch. As for the language, I've always been ugly by your standards, but I haven't been old. But I haven't always been old. I've traveled the Starways in my time, and your name, that was easy. When This is when Luke is like, how do you know my name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think um, that Minch is – we see elements of this with Yoda, but Minch is a lot more explicit in that he doesn't really like Luke. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't like R2. I think there's a lot of tension actually between Minch and R2 <laughs> that that Lee so kind much. Of explores in the draft. Yeah. We see some of it at Empire, right? But it's kind of like it's played off for laughs, which I imagine it would have been in this version too. But R2 is just like ready to get the F off. He's so the salty. Planet. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very funny. It's great. <laughs> This is what I mean. I think that Lee was really good at writing the robots and the droids. Yeah. She really gave them major personalities and ticks and things that they're annoyed at and love um, in ways that I just haven't really seen elsewhere or just it stood out to me. Yeah. There is a quote. So Luke actually passes out when they leave the ice planet on the way to the bog planet and R2 has to take over flying. And Lee writes about R2. R2 is flying the spacer making noises both irritable and doubtful. This is not his job, and he's making a botch of it. <laughs> <laughs> like R2 just driving the, the starfighter, like, this is this is not, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So basically, do you want to talk a little bit about this next section, Caitlin, with Minch and Luke and the Force? 
Yeah, I think um, we touched on it earlier, but this is where we get a lot of things that Minch is telling Luke about the dark side. And I think we see a lot of differences in the way that the Force is talked about. And even we don't have the same kind of training sequence that we get in Empire Strikes Back. Um, And Minch essentially at one point tells Luke that he is a burden and that he would actually prefer it if Luke would just leave his planet, which seemed very harsh to me. But one of the things that I found really interesting about Minch and his relationship to the Force is how he can call out Ben Kenobi. Um, This whole section is very, it's much more medieval Knights at the Round Table, the way they talk about the Force and being a Jedi. And even I think the way that they talk to each other the fact that Minch can essentially call Ben Kenobi out, he basically just shouts really loudly, like, come out, Ben Kenobi. And Ben Kenobi's ghost appears. Um, (laughs) And they talk about, like, how to use your lightsaber and the what it means to have a connection to the Force and the dark side and things like that. Um, and, And we also hear Minch tell Luke that he's too old to be trained in the ways of the Force. Yeah, super interesting that that was always there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there are a couple of quotes that I think would be good to read just to kind of get an idea of of what we're talking about here. So Minch says, it's then the dark side of you. A pause while Luke grapples with this. It's in all of us. That's what makes the temptation so great. The force is a power. It's up to the individual how he uses it. Most of the Jedi Knights were honorable men, faithful to their vows, but sometimes dot, dot, dot. Luke responds, what happened to the bad ones? Minch, there were none during my service until Darth Vader. I think the knights had forgotten and grown careless. And Luke says, how soon will I be able to call Ben from dot, 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 wherever he is? (laughs) And Minch says, you've still got a few lessons ahead of you. (laughs) Um, But when we also get to the part where in Empire, Yoda raises the X-Wing from the swamp. You know, it's that moment. Mm-hmm. The scene with Minch plays very differently. It's still there where Minch raises it from the swamp, but he's standing behind, like he tells Luke to try to do it. And then he stands behind Luke and does it himself. But the way that I interpret it, and maybe this is wrong, Luke thinks that he raises the ship from the swamp. Um, yeah, that's how I interpreted it too. Yeah, and they make an interesting note, which I think would have would have created a very different character for Yoda that I, I don't love, but I am curious about the concept where it says Minch appeared to grow larger. Like essentially when Minch was mm-hmm. raising the X-Wing out, he got bigger behind Luke essentially. And then he, I guess, like shrinks back down um, to whatever size he would have been, which <laughs> – when thinking about Yoda and everything that kind of goes along with Yoda being unassuming because he's so small, I'm glad we don't have that characteristic. But I can also see the visual of this scene of Luke thinking he's using the force and then this, you know, frog-like teacher growing in stature behind him and then shrinking back down. I think that would have also been a really something really cool to explore in Star Wars too. Maybe not through Yoda as we know him now, but I don't know. That really stood out to me and I think would have been a really, really visual moment in the film. I think ILM would have had a lot of issues with doing that. Would have been great. It would have been great. It would have been in in the documentaries today. It would have been fantastic. (laughs) 
So after um, they kind of have this initial discussion with Ben and Minch, we get what essentially is the dark side cave scene. But um, Luke goes into a vision or an actual experience. And this is where he meets Vader in the stars, which I really enjoyed this part. And I know we talked about this a little bit in maybe our dark side episodes or maybe our Yoda episodes. I can't remember, but I know we've talked about this this part in the draft before where essentially Luke goes to the astral plane, it feels like, and he um, talks to Vader in the stars. And this is when Vader first offers Luke to run the galaxy with him. And it's described that Vader like reaches out and grabs the stars. Um, He also taunts Luke by saying that he knows that Luke is in love with Leia, but he'll lose her to Han if he doesn't turn to the dark side. And um, Luke like, it says he grabs the stars too, but they burn, which I love that visual too, that Vader can grab the stars, but Luke can't. And then Luke kind of ends the vision experience, whatever you want to call it. And Vader says, run then Luke, but you'll come back. The dark side in you won't let you rest, which I love that line too. I would love to see that line in Star Wars now. I think it's such a, it's such a great line. Um, And after the vision ends, Luke tells Minch, I ran, Minch. I ran away. I couldn't fight him. He looks at his hand with a kind of horror because I wanted, I wanted. Minch looks at him somberly, but unsurprised, which I think the thing I like about how the dark side is explored in this draft is that it really brings to the surface that it is in all of us, which I think is kind of what we get with the idea that Vader is Luke's father and that we see Luke as the hero, but he comes from such darkness. So we see that. But these kinds of lines, I think, like the dark side in you won't let you rest. Like I can, the way that I can see that line about like Kylo or Anakin in the sequel and prequel trilogy. And I think it's also a very, uh, what's the word? It's a line that sticks with you, I think, and would be great to have within some of our characters as they're moving through their their storylines and you know like Anakin thinking about how the dark side is always in him and Kylo as well I don't know I just I really liked that line yeah I think one of the most controversial things though about this draft is the fact that Luke is able to conjure up Anakin's ghost well he doesn't conjure up Anakin's ghost he conjures up Ben's ghost who then conjures up Anakin's ghost. Yeah, yeah. So Ben brings... <laughs> there's, some, there's some conjuring there's, going on. So, yeah. So Luke finally is like, I call thee Ben Kenobi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> ben, ben Kenobi appears. Um, but I also... I did like the conversation that Ben and so Luke did I. have about... I yeah, about how, how Ben is even here. <laughs> and I think it would have been a good conversation that would have served us well throughout, you know, the next 40 years of Star Wars. <laughs> right. And I... It's really interesting because Anakin... Ghostly Anakin comes to visit <laughs> Luke and they have a full-on conversation. Anakin even tells him that he has a sister and that the sister can't be revealed. And there's no indication in this draft, by the way, that Leia is Luke's sister. I don't think she would have um, been, yeah. I don't think she would have been either. But Anakin cannot reveal who the sister is because if she does, then Vader would know um, because of their connection, which I think is interesting. So again, it's very clear that Anakin is not Darth Vader in this, and there's just no familial connection between Vader and Luke. 
And um, what then follows is basically this swearing in ceremony with Luke pledging himself to the Jedi, like quite literally pledging himself. It's very nice. There's around an oath. table. Yeah, there's an oath. There's a whole oath. And the oath kind of follows Luke later um, when he is tempted by the dark side. It's almost like it's really a pledge. Right. Yeah. Um, so here it is in the script. Slowly, proudly, Luke draws his lightsaber and activates it, bringing it to the salute. Skywalker does the same. Ben and Minch also raise their sabers, standing by as witnesses. Luke, I, Luke Skywalker, Luke repeats after a suitable intervals, do swear on my honor and on the faith of the Brotherhood of the Knights to use the force only for good, to dedicate my life to the cause of freedom and justice. If I should fail this vow, my life shall be forfeit here and here, hereafter. The four sabers touch a kind of ceremonial amen. That is the only armor I can give you, son. The rest is yours to do. Ben says, goodbye, Luke. And then they disappear. <laughs> goodbye, Luke. <laughs> like, this, this felt so cheesy to me. Yeah. But I understand the need that Lee probably saw in creating more understanding about what the Jedi Knights are. And she really took that quite literally. Like, this is very knightly. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, very interesting. <laughs> Um, and this conversation that Luke has with Anakin, I think, is I think weirdly it, placed. It's it is. I don't. It's I don't really like it. short too. It's it's like, so short. Hey, dad. It's like now I'm a Jedi. It's weird. Bye, Dad. I it, it needs a lot of refinement. <laughs> <laughs> I just I think it's very odd. Um, oh, and of course I think it's odd because the way that we understand Luke and Anakin's relationship now just doesn't this doesn't fit this doesn't jive this doesn't add any sort of tension with Luke's backstory at all um so shifting a little bit we are back on the city in the clouds um which in this script is called Hoth it's very confusing but um yeah the city in the clouds they find a city in the clouds because uh they need a place for landing, just like an Empire Strikes Back. And Han remembers his friend Lando. And Lando is described as, it's Lando Kadar, who's described as a, quote, honest smuggler. Um, he says that, Han says that the planet Hoth means cloud. So it's not cloud city. It's just, it's confusing. Um, Lee compares Lando in a manner to Rudolph Valentino and describes him as, quote, impeccably dressed. And that stayed. <laughs> and that stayed. All that stayed. And I, think that's, I think that's really cool. And I like in the script, it's like quite literally like he is like Rudolph Valentino. He is so well-dressed. He's really suave. He's super cool. Lee also introduced a character named Bahiri, who is basically Lando's fatherly figure. He's an older guy who works with Lando and is basically like the Lobot figure, honestly, that greets Leia and Han and Chewie and 3PO on the skiff when they land on the cloud planet. And we meet Bahiri a little bit later as well. I'll also say that they hide Leia's identity as a princess. Yeah. Uh, right. In this she gets draft a whole too. alias. Yeah. And just like in Empire Strikes Back, Lando makes a deal with Darth Vader and lets Vader land on the Cloud City planet and everything. Um, and the way that Lando is perceived, I guess, like right away in this deal is less backed into a corner for the good of his city and more like he's more swindling and sees it as an opportunity. He does get redeemed basically and doesn't necessarily um, 
and like turns to the good side, I guess. But it's not as complicated as we get in Empire Strikes Back with Lando. Yeah. We do still have the dinner scene where, you know, we do the dining room scene, which I thought was great. Again, not that much tension in it, though. Like, they yeah. get to go back to their rooms yeah. at the end of it. And Leia, I think, says something snarky to Vader and is like, all right, well, bye. And then she leaves the dining room. <laughs> it's like, no. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> we, just, I, I just leave. They talk about how Vader's not eating. And Vader's like, well, like, like I can't eat the same way I anymore. Can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like conversations are happening. And it's just funny that conversations are happening yeah. at this dinner it's just it's like why aren't um, you eating darth vader can't you not again, eat with your with helmet the, the lack of tension yeah there's just there's definitely something missing between all of these characters that would make like a second layer way more complicated and more in peril i guess yeah so all of this is happening just like as it does in empire strikes back where concurrently on the bog planet uh Yoda Minch is telling Luke he needs to face his fears and to open his mind to the dark side of the force. Um, like Caitlin mentioned, this is where he sees Vader in the like astral plane, basically. And um, then Luke tries to fight Vader and then he gets scared and ends up back away from the astral plane, basically crying and running away. And uh, it's kind of sad. I felt I felt bad for Luke in that moment because he was like, I'm not I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't a hero, blah, blah, blah. Luke is like, OK, I have to face him. So we fast forward um, and he says that when he leaves the sorry, we go forward a little bit and Luke decides to leave the bog planet to go find Vader in person, not in the astral plane. And he reinstates his sworn oath to freedom mm -hmm. and justice as he leaves with the lightsaber. And it's very nightly. So, so back on the pl the cloud planet, they're in lockdown. The Empire has fully locked down the city. No one can get in or out. And it's kind of unclear why. To me, it was a little unclear why they were doing that. <laughs> um, besides, like, trying to find Luke. Vader proposes that they're going to wall off the city and anyone who approaches is going to be immediately shot down. Somehow Luke gets through, though, <laughs> and meets Lando's, like, fatherly figure, Bahiri, like I mentioned before, and Bahiri works with Luke to let him in and says that he is their prisoner, and that's how he gets in. And Bahiri then becomes a hero and leads Lando, Han, and Leia and Chewie so they can get out of the city and shares that there is a secret path out through the cloud city that that's the only way in or out um and as they're making their daring escape and bahiri is protecting them um he says we are free men we take no orders from the empire and then the stormtroopers kill him and it's this daring sacrifice very sad. in the name it's very sad mm -hmm. it's it was a real moment of um major sacrifice i guess mm -hmm. in in this that really affects lando and makes lando uh turn from assisting the empire to assisting the rebellion and luke witnesses this and shares this back to han and leia and chewie and says that he's lando i i witnessed him become good now he's going to help us just kind of interesting um something also to note is that there's no carbonite there's no threat of han being the torture yeah tortured or anything like that han is forever with leia they're escaping together but Luke does kiss Leia in this yep. kind of kerfluffle on, you know, the cloud planet. 
and tells Leia that they'll find a way out. And then he runs mm-hmm. off to go fight Vader. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he goes to fight Vader, and this is generally uninteresting in the script, honestly. They they fight, there's some words being thrown around, but it's really just like fighting words. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong here. He <laughs> they're just fighting. He, they're just they're, they're honestly they're because there's no tension with the father-son relationship or how they're similar, it's really just can you control the dark side? I don't know. And in a couple moments of weakness, the dark side takes over Luke. Um, they go towards the astral plane again, even though they're in the same place. And then um, when Luke gains his strike, strength back, they're not in the astral plane anymore. And Luke is able to evade Vader. And that's how he gets away. And he um, is sucked down another little exhaust port shaft mm-hmm. and then is rescued by Han, Leia, Chewie, and Lando in the Falcon. So that's that. <laughs> He's able to get away. He fought Vader and Vader was a little weakened, but he's still alive. And yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then at the end, Luke is having a conversation with Han and Leia about his fight with Vader. And he says, I almost beat him at it, but the wrong way. The more I was winning, the more I was losing. I was so full of hate and rage and the desire for revenge. I was using the dark side of the force without even realizing it. And he was making me destroy myself. And Leia responds, but you didn't. And Luke says, no, quite. He asked me again to join with him. He said that together we could rule the galaxy. I said no, so he came in for the kill. I've got an awful lot to learn yet. <laughs> and in the end, uh, Han does leave to go find his stepfather and separates from the rest of the crew. Uh, and Han and Leia have one last makeout session. Luke and Leia don't talk at all about the multiple kisses that they've shared throughout this film, <laughs> but Han <laughs> leaves and the rest of them are on the Falcon. Uh, very similar to the, I would imagine, very similar to the last shot we actually see in uh, in Empire. Yep. But again, that uh, that tension isn't there because you think about like Han is fine. Luke is fine. You know, he's had a, a tussle with the dark side, but he overcame it. So I feel like the ending is not quite is definitely not as dramatic as it is in Empire. There needed to be a lot of drama injected into the script that yeah. just was not there. Yeah. There are things I appreciate and we should talk about them all. So after the summary, let's discuss our thoughts in the next part. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. All right, welcome to part three, our kind of general thoughts and any lingering things we want to talk about from parts one and two. But what are our overall thoughts on this draft? Um, Lawrence Kasdan's is better, un- unfortunately. That's, <laughs> But like, of course it is. It had a lot of time to marinate and work through. I think it's a real feat that she introduced the ice planet, the Han Leia romance, Lando the fellows as, the, as a fellow smuggler. I feel like there's a connection that's like forcey between Vader and Luke that's really interesting. Introducing Minch Yoda on the bog planet. All of these kind of stayed really similar. They just needed a couple more layers to make them more interesting. Anakin Skywalker as a ghost. There's like a horror element that I think is good. And I think a lot of people think about Empire Strikes Back as like the darker middle chapter, you know, and it was like a darker sequel. And I think that she was really pulling at that with the horror elements like we mentioned with the ice creatures attacking this base constantly, the the freezing, the bodies being strewn everywhere. She was really going for that. I, I think it was really 
as I find, just like when we read the Duel of the Fates script, I'm like, there's so much that needed to be developed in this. But I do think that there's some genuinely brilliant things that happened in this script as well. Yeah, I think the fact that they essentially kept the same structure overall Mm -hmm. speaks a lot to that. And a lot of these situations are still the same that we eventually see in Empire. It's just changing the dynamic of the characters a little bit, right? Like everything with Minch and Luke and Ben on the bog planet, that all is more or less the same. But as soon as you make Vader Luke's father, then the entire dynamic there changes because Yoda, Minch, and Ben would then know who Luke's father. You know what I mean? Like you completely change the tension in those scenes, even though structurally it's kind of the same, right? Like Luke doesn't go to the astral plane, but he does have an experience with Vader in the dark side cave and everything, you know, I would say the thing that I I wish we could have seen, but I understand why we don't is that horror element on the ice planet in the beginning, because I think that would have been, I think it would have been really fun to see it, honestly, to see how it would have been designed with this ice castle and I guess something equivalent to the wampa, but like many wampas and the the freezing of people. I think that would have been really scary and really a really dramatic way to kick off the second, you know, the Star Wars sequel. But we talked about this a little bit in the beginning about how there wasn't as much tension between like the Empire and the Rebellion. And we moved so much into like Luke and Vader in the back half of Empire that the beginning on Hoth, on what becomes Hoth, when we have, um, you know, the Empire attack the Rebellion you c- and force them to leave the base, you kind of need that from you know, the empire versus the rebellion side of the story, because that's not as much the focus in the back half of Empire Strikes Back. So you kind of in the beginning, but that horror element with the castle and the creatures in the castle, I think is so cool (laughs) and would have been really fun to see actually. Yeah, absolutely. I think something interesting is that in this draft, Han isn't on the run. He's not. Yeah on the run from his debts or anything, which I, I understand that there might be this implication that after the medal ceremony in the original Star Wars that maybe he would settle his debts or something. But mm-hmm. I think carrying that tension through that they did in Empire Strikes Back eventually, I think was such a great move. But there's just this theme constantly, like I mentioned, that like screenwriters don't really know what to do with Han and his background ever. I think that what they have chosen to do at the in the final product is great, but it's very clear that there's always been a little bit of a question mark about how to explain Han Solo. So I just think it's interesting that Han's not on the, really on the run in this script at all. His main driving point is, is Han going to take the mission to go meet his stepfather mm-hmm. to see if it they can help the, the rebellion, the rebellion it's, eventually. And it, that just isn't even resolved in this. So hopefully that would be in Star Wars 3. Yeah, it's it's a better trajectory for Han's character, what we see in Empire of, you know, him having to leave. Cause, you know, because at the end of A New Hope, Leia tells him, you know, I knew, what did she say? I knew you weren't all, why can't I find the quote? But, you know, she's like, I knew you you had a heart of gold, essentially. Like, I knew you'd come back and help us to Han at the end. And so, but then in Empire to see that he is planning on leaving the rebellion in order to settle his debts and get all of that squared away that's part of the tension between Leia and Han in the beginning of Empire is, oh, you're just going to run away again. Like, I thought this meant something to you. And Han is like, yeah, mm-hmm. you mean something to me. And of course, Leia is like, no, like the rebellion at large and like what we're fighting for. He's like, well, I mean, like it does, but I also have this debt hanging over my head. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think that trajectory works better rather than 
because we get to, it's more of a continuation of Han's character arc that it wasn't all just, you know, settled. He didn't have this complete change at the end of A New Hope, that there's still stuff he's working through um, and work, working through an empire at the beginning there. I think also there's just an element of like mysteriousness missing from this draft too. Mm-hmm. I think um, Yoda minch isn't as mysterious as he could be or isn't as like funny he's not that funny you no, know he's not funny at and all. i think that might have been more frank oz being introduced yeah to be yoda eventually that came in but there's no like whimsy with that that i think was necessary and i think that kind of goes to what you're saying about a weird thing that they were going to do if like minch grows in stature and yeah. things like that that just feels more ominous than it does or like powerful versus whimsical and magical Mm -hmm. and yeah he doesn't really feel like that in this script at all um also i don't really think ben kenobi does anything in this script honestly um and i know that in empire strikes back ben kenobi is more exposition than (laughs) in a lot of ways um and just like an explainer for luke's past and anakin's past but uh i don't think they he use does less him. here he does somehow less <laughs> this. and then also then they bring in Anakin and it just doesn't it that yeah. also isn't really doing much beyond having Luke swear an oath to the Jedi yeah I think that Anakin he's not even named in this script it's just the Luke's father Skywalker um yeah, yeah Skywalker it that definitely hits does not I guess it does not hit at all it falls very (laughs) flat and when I was reading it I was trying to think you know is this because I know the reveal and that is a hundred times better or is it you know because of the structure of the script itself and it just feels like he's just kind of in and out so quickly in the script that it doesn't hold a lot of weight you know like we see force ghost Ben a lot more than we do Anakin or the father figure which I think if if we went in that direction of Vader not being the father figure, that there could have been that tension of, you know, the Anakin character talking about how Vader killed him. You know, we could have brought more of that tension, I think, into the scene itself um, about, you know, why Luke feels he has to go and, you know, confront Vader again in real life, this element of revenge that he feels for his father, for his father's sake and things like that. And we really didn't see any of that in this version of the draft. And also to, you know, briefly touch on Ben's role too, you know, in Empire, Ben is the one who tells Luke to go to Dagobah, to the bog planet. But in this version, Luke, Ben doesn't tell Luke that, you know, on the ice planet. And it's actually the crystal in his lightsaber that I think has a map or tells him to go to the bog planet. Um, And that's what R2 uses when Luke passes out to get them to the bog planet. So Ben doesn't even tell Luke to go to the bog planet in this version. Right. Yeah. The sentient crystal of it all. Yeah. There's a lot of like putting different, I don't know, directives on different characters than what would just be simpler, I guess. And that's a really good example of Ben just appearing on the ice planet and then not really given any directive. Yeah. Just being a shadowy figure, you know, <laughs> that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. And I think that just I, I just want to hammer at home that because there's no tension with the family, there's no tension really with Luke and the force and the evil. And I think something missing in this draft really is a major tension with the Empire. I mean, even 
Han and Leia going to dinner with Darth Vader doesn't feel like it's a tense meeting as much as it does eventually. I could even argue that that meeting should be even more tense in Empire Strikes Back yeah. than it is. But it, there's there's like basically no weight to it in this. It's just instead of a discussion of why Vader doesn't eat, like that's weird. And <laughs> it's not, <laughs> there's, there's just something missing there. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I guess the last thing I'll say about like the tension, I think that we touched on it before, but you know, the tension between Luke and the lightsaber, I, I did think was really interesting. And something that I think we've seen kind of explored in other facets of Star Wars now, but I think would have been really surprising for audiences into Empire. Almost the way that we see Luke presented at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, where this there's kind of such this serious shift in his character when he's brought in yeah. to Jabba's palace, right? It's kind of shocking. I think seeing Luke kind of be overcome by the dark side, by his lightsaber in the beginning of, of this, of the Star Wars sequel, I think would have been, I think audiences would have really been talking about it and how, you know, that's not like Luke at all. But that's also kind of the point, I think, in Lee's draft here is that he you know he did this great thing he's introduced to the force and you know he's the hero in the first one but now he has to figure out how to deal with the dark side that is always within him and he clearly doesn't know how to do that in the beginning of the film where he's kind of overcome with this possessiveness over the lightsaber and is kind of i would probably looking really creepy to a lot of people there Totally. <laughs> but I think that I think it was really great to finally go through this draft fully because, you know, like we said, we've had, you know, we're aware of it and have explored pieces of it, like with Minch, specifically in our Yoda series and some of the dark side elements. But I think really seeing just how similar the draft is, but then also how fundamentally different it is, too, is a, it's a fun exercise. Absolutely. And I just want to comment on the fact that George Lucas said that Lee Brackett went in a completely different direction than what he was envisioning. I just think it's so interesting because it's just not true. Yeah. Just the bones of this are familiar. I would say even more than the bones. You know, it's like the bones yeah. and muscle. <laughs> totally, totally. But the heart, if we're going doing a body metaphor here, <laughs> the heart is what's different. Because again, as soon as you make Vader Luke's father, everyone's relationships change. George Lucas probably envisioned a family saga and one that was, because he has from the beginning, there was always a a piece of how are these characters related to each other, even though if those relationship changes, if those relationships changed a bunch in his ideas, I still feel like he probably read this and was like, this isn't the family drama that I was like looking for. Yeah. And I don't think that this incorporates enough of my thoughts about the force being like Buddhist at all. There's none of that spiritualism in this. It really is very much a um, medieval medieval vibe mm -hmm. like at all, at all points there's no yeah. even even minch doesn't really have this backwards uh speech also that i think doesn't even allow for that sort of spiritual spiritualism to shine through and like there's very minimal japanese influence also in this unlike the original star wars with the samurai and things like that there is some parts where the the like the swordsmanship does feel very samurai, but it's it still feels very distant from that obsession that George Lucas had with continuing that sort of vibe. There's that element is like completely missing, even though what is explored in this script with the force is quite interesting. And something like I was genuinely thrilled to see the whole astral plane thing Me being too, yeah. introduced. And it's kind of sad that that 
we haven't really, really seen that again. I guess the world between worlds is the closest thing, but it is. So I guess we and, kind of and have, also yeah. like the fourth the force bond too, because in yeah. this Luke and Vader do have is, a, yeah. a bond. Yeah, yeah, and he gets he's like, scared of the bond. Vader, and he yeah. Can't, yeah, and he can't. He's touching the bond and things like that, and then he doesn't really know how to control it and things like that. And I think it's very similar to like how we saw Ray and Kylo interact and things like that. But I kind of wish that that was explored more, but I guess it makes more sense for the script that we eventually get um, to lean more on the familial element versus the force element. But Yeah. And having Luke see his own face beneath the Vader mask really starts to hint at that too, when he's in the cave. It's much more than like, Oh, this could happen to you. It makes yeah. it, it makes the story so much more interesting. Yeah, once when you know too. That's added on. Yeah, once you've yeah. seen the ending. Yeah. Yeah. I think that ultimately I come away from Lee's draft thinking, you know, about these major similarities and differences, but also thinking that George kind of needed this draft to see what he didn't want in a way. You know what I mean? Because you think about he's having these conversations with Lee Brackett while she's writing the draft of, you know, I want them to go here. I I want there to be romance. You know, we've got to have this duel with Vader, right? And for him to see what, you know, that quote he says from the annotated screenplays, let me go back to it, where he says, during the story conferences I had with Lee, my thoughts weren't fully formed. And I felt that her script went in a completely different direction. Like he needed this draft in order to realize, okay, this is what I wasn't clear about. This is what I didn't realize I even wanted. You know what I mean? Like he kind of had to see someone else write it to realize what he wanted the the draft, the film to actually say to think, oh, you know, I need, I do want Vader to be Luke's father. I need to be more explicit this way or the love triangle doesn't work like maybe I thought it did. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I think that sometimes this is why you have drafts. This is why you (laughs) work through things. Unfortunately, Lee Brackett wasn't able to do that, but I bet she could have, I mean, what she's written is a mastery in drama previously. So I'm sure that we would have gotten there, especially if George and her were able to talk more about what would a third draft look like? What would a fourth draft look like? We'll never know. Mm-hmm. But it's very cool to see Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back really in its infancy here and how much work went into making it one of the best sequels ever. Yeah. It's really cool. And I am very grateful to Lee Brackett for like basically laying it all out before Lawrence Kasdan could get into it. Yeah. I mean, like we said, it really is remarkably similar, even for all the ways that it is remarkably different. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, is there anything else you want to say about this draft at the time? No, I'm just so happy that we finally got into it and we talked about it on the episode, on on the podcast, because it's been a long time coming. I know. Me too. Yay. Well, thank you guys for listening. Uh, Let us know if you've read Lee Brackett's Star Wars sequel and what you think of it, or if now you're interested in reading it. Um, We would love to know. Up next from us is going to be Bad Batch. So please look forward to that. We are so excited for what is coming down the line with the final season of Bad Batch season three. So that comes out in February. And like we said at the top of the show, we will be covering it. So (laughs) if that was even a question. (laughs) But until then, you can find us on our social media platforms. You can find us on Twitter, uh, X at SkytalkersPod, or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Crarity and mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our 
TikTok, our Instagram, all good places to find us. And if you have a second and would like to leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate it. You can also share with others that you're listening to the show in real time by screenshotting and sharing to your story and tagging us. And we would love to reshare and repost that. It works kind of like word of mouth for the podcast. And if you're interested in other ways to support us and how to get involved with our wonderful Discord community, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Corey, GMO, Olivia, Lindsay, Triumphant Ewok, Renee, Iris Jedi, Maximilian, Ben, Emily, Ian, Simon, Sophia, Allie, Jessica, Kat, Benjamin, Brooke, David, Eugene, Gary, Pam, Tadashi, Cassie, Jonah, and Becky. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.